0: This is Pastor Matthew, hoping your week is going well. We'll try some different formats with this, but to get this podcast going this week, I'd like to share some encouragement for you from God's Word to chew on before we gather to worship again this Sunday. We'll be taking a walk through Hebrews 10, 19-25, so feel free to pause this and turn there if you have handy access to a Bible. But I'll go ahead and read the passage aloud, too. This passage contains two theological truths to ground our practice, followed by three commands in light of that theology for us to consider. I'll tell you up front that we as believers tend to do pretty well at two of these commands, but we tend to struggle with a third. So as part of our ongoing focus on the New Testament's vision of discipleship being the foundation of how we operate as a church, let's look at how this passage instructs us to live as a body in light of what Christ has accomplished for us. Go ahead and follow along as I read Hebrews ten nineteen through 25 It reads, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first thing to mention is that this passage is all one sentence in the Greek. I don't know of a single English translation that doesn't put a sentence break between verses 22 and 23, but that's really unfortunate because it muddies the connection between the last two commands and the theology and the one command that precede them. The Bible could just give you commands by themselves, but almost all the time instructions are given for the church, there are theological foundations before them so that we obey them out of hearts excited to obey God because we see more of who he really is theology comes before practice or as many theologians like to say the indicative precedes the imperative so these commands then are not just isolated instructions for the church they are instead ways we ought to live because of the realities described at the beginning of the passage so what are those realities we find those in verses 19 through 21 let me reread that for you Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He starts with, therefore. Because these two realities summarize two of the biggest truths that the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews have been trying to prove. Specifically, number one, that we have access to God through the new covenant made possible because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that never happened in the old covenant. Through all the Old Testament, God was completely unapproachable because of his holiness. You see that throughout the book of Exodus, for example, when God's presence leads the people as a pillar of cloud or fire and then sits on the mountain with lightning and thunder so that the people are rightly terrified to go near him and demand that Moses go to God for them. The holy of holies or most holy place where God's presence physically dwelt among the people was blocked by by a veil and only accessible one day a year by the high priest and only after he went through very particular rituals to cover over sin. And even then he had to obscure his view of the place with smoke so he wasn't killed for being a sinful creature in the direct presence of a completely holy God. All those Old Testament sacrifices were temporary coverings for sin. That's what the Hebrew word for atonement means, by the way, a covering. They were waiting on the one day when a perfect sacrifice could actually take away sin. But God, by His grace, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf allows us to approach God in a way that would have been unthinkable to the ancient Israelites. Being in the new covenant with Christ means that God allows us into fellowship with him without any fear of unworthiness. Not because we're worthy in ourselves, but because he sees Christ's holiness instead. Now, the second truth from the rest of the book that we're reminded of here is from verse 21, that Christ is our great high priest. This means that we have someone who offered a perfect sacrifice of himself, by the way, and ministers perfectly, not like the high priest before him whose, first of all, sacrifices were not sufficient to truly take away sin, and second of all, they themselves were imperfect with varying degrees of faithfulness. Yet, this great priest can still fully sympathize with us and our weaknesses because he lived as a human being among us. He is the perfect priest who can both be completely acceptable before God, yet totally relatable to the people he represents to God. So, With those two truly awesome truths in mind, the author of Hebrews gives us three commands for ways we ought to live in light of these truths. The first one in verse 22 is that we ought to draw near with a sincere heart. And then it goes on to encourage us that we've been cleansed from sin. Now, we all know we're still not perfect on this side of heaven. But we should boldly approach God anyway, knowing that we are acceptable to him because of Christ. We should never let fear or guilt cause us to draw back from God, but rather we ought to cling even more closely. Because Christ paid the price to give us access to the Father and is even right now ministering on our behalf as our great priest, we must take advantage of that access and ministry by pursuing God wholeheartedly knowing that we are most blessed as we are closest to him. Now, the second command from verse 23 is that we ought to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, with the reassurance that he who promised is faithful. It's tempting to think that all this is too good to be true and worry that we'll find out we've been duped when we get to eternity, or maybe we're tempted to think that somehow we can screw this up by our own failures. The fact is, however, that our confidence is in the blood and flesh of Christ from verses 19 and 20, meaning his sacrificial death and righteous life, respectively. So we celebrate a communion. Now, these are things that already happened in human history. We don't have to wonder if they will happen. They're already done deals. Plus, Christ is the great high priest ministering perfectly. He won't mess it up any time from now to eternity. We have no reason to waver in our faith because all of it is dependent on what Christ has done and who he is. So it cannot possibly fail. Now, drawing near to God and holding fast to our faith are things we need reminders of, but probably have some idea of how to pursue. But the third command in verse 24 is where we sometimes struggle to know how to be faithful. We are told to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We've been given access to God and are being served by a great high priest, so we ought to be discipling one another to be a body that reflects the God whose name we bear. This faith that draws us and to which we cling is not meant to be just for us as individuals. Christ is ministering to sanctify for himself a people, just as the high priest of old ministered for the whole people. Therefore, it's our responsibility to help one another grow to reflect Christ better in love and good works. As a matter of fact, the word for stimulate there in verse 24 really means an outburst. But it's used idi- idiomatically like this to refer to stirring up, provocation, stimulation, etc. But in other words, we're being told that in light of our access to God and the ministry of Christ, there should be an outburst of love and good deeds in His church. So, how do we make this happen? That's why verse 25 ends the thought with an elaboration of the verse before. In case we're not sure how to get each other bursting with love and good deeds, we are told we can't forsake assembling together, but rather we need to encourage each other, especially the closer we get to Christ's return. How will we encourage one another and create that outburst of love and good deeds that the church is supposed to be if we're not gathered together? Even more, think about how much easier it is to draw near to God or hold fast to our faith when we are in community with other believers. These things aren't accomplished just by coming together once a week, by the way. This is accomplished by seeing ourselves as Christ's body and wanting to live out the realities that he has won for us. By instead of seeing this life as ours to live, seeing it as the arena God has given us to live out his priorities and purposes on earth. We have access to God. That should be life-changing reality. But we need to be surrounding each other to help that reality actually change our lives. We all need to pray about how God wants these truths to shape us. But I know one way he is calling us to grow is in our attachment to the church. That can mean different things for different people, though. Some of us simply need to make it more of a priority to be here when we gather to worship. Others of us may be here most of the times we gather, but are not using the time the way God intended, to be growing together in Christ. Another way of putting it is that I I think this text challenges us to think about the why question. If we're not coming to church faithfully when the Bible makes it clear it's so vital, why is that? If we are coming regularly, why are we here? Are we fulfilling God's plan for us to be united in Christ and spurring each other on under the reality of what Christ has accomplished and is accomplishing for us? Or is there a selfish reason? Or maybe no reason at all, just our custom that we don't even think about? Brothers and sisters, I think most of us are getting some taste of what God intends for us to experience as a church. But I think all of us are guilty of letting the low bar of our culture's idea of all a church is allow us to settle for a ham sandwich instead of the big juicy steak God is trying to serve us. I'd encourage us all, myself included, to pray that God would soften our hearts to see how we can better live out what Christ has done and continues to do by drawing near to Him, staying strong in our faith, and growing closer together as a body. Thanks for listening. I pray it's been edifying. Check back next Wednesday for our next episode of Touchpoints.